Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. America has been opening back up for a few months now. More and more of us are getting vaccinated, and fewer and fewer of us are wearing masks. And I know many of us are feeling some combination of relief and excitement and grief and anxiety, and maybe a little hesitancy to get back out there. And there's still this question of how and when we should turn the page on this pandemic, especially as it's still raging in large parts of the world, and also about how we should remember it. After the 1918 flu, few Americans talked about it. Up until recent years, it rarely appeared in books or art or public policy. The world had been reshaped by disease and by world war, but we focus on commemorating the war. Now today, it's natural to want to move forward with our lives and leave the pain and trauma of 2020 in the past. But I know that I, at least, also needed to look back on the year just to process everything that we had lived through and to learn more about what really happened. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Lawrence Wright's new book, The Plague Year, was exactly the thing I needed. I realized that some of my early facts about the pandemic had been wrong, and I also found myself getting choked up just remembering everything that had happened. At the beginning of 2020, Wright was about to publish his first novel, The End of October, a book that just happened to be about a deadly virus that upended the world. The sources he developed while writing that book put him in a unique position to examine the global effects of COVID-19, the very real virus. Wright has covered topics like terrorism, Scientology, and Texas politics in previous books, and he has a knack for explaining dense subjects and finding interesting characters. Today on The Reckon Interview, we'll hear from Lawrence Wright about the origins of COVID-19, his experience writing this nonfiction book versus writing a novel about a virus. We'll talk about what we got right, where we went wrong, and how this experience has reshaped us. And we'll also learn a little bit about what's been happening in his home state of Texas. Right now, we're seeing a wave of politicians and pundits try to rewrite the story of the COVID-19 pandemic, a story that we all lived through. And so as we get ready to move on, I think it's important that we look back and we get it right on this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. In the spring of 2020, just as America was starting to shut down and cases were rising in places like New York and New Orleans and Seattle, you were preparing for the publication of your first novel, the end of October, and it just so happened to be about a flu-like virus that emerged from Asia and led to a global pandemic. This wasn't the first time that you had predicted what could happen in a world-changing scenario. Your film, The Siege, also anticipated 9-11. So, you know, something of a monkey's paw for you, I guess. Your new book, The Plague Year, chronicles that first year of the actual coronavirus pandemic. And just from a storytelling perspective, for a novel, you get to create your characters. You kind of get to create the virus. You get to create the scenario with the real-world pandemic that affected so many different people in so many different ways, how did you go about choosing the perspectives and the stories and the characters to include in this work? Well, in the real world, when my editor started with the New Yorker article, uh, they wanted me to write a, a big story about how the pandemic has changed us. And it really is a big story because you think about how the pandemic left almost nothing untouched. Race, the economy, 
politics, science, the way we live, the way we interact with each other, our whole cultural system was shut down. So everything about being an American at that point and practically anybody in the world had changed. So the question was, how do you tell such a vast story? And my technique was to, first of all, find institutions that represent those sectors of our society, like Congress, Wall Street, the White House, Hospital, Bellevue Hospital is one I picked, you know, emblematic institutions. And then within them, I look for characters who can convey the story and represent, you know, other people. I call these characters donkeys. It's a, just a, a term of art for me, but and it sounds disparaging, I'm very aware, but a donkey is a beast of burden and he can carry a lot of information on his back and he can take the reader into a world that he's never been. That's exactly the kind of person that I like to concentrate on. If the reader cares about the donkey, then the world that he inhabits becomes far more important. You can write a nonfiction book without any characters at all. But to me, characters and scenes are essential to enlist the reader's sympathy. And if, if once you have captured that, then the factual matter that surrounds the context, uh, that becomes far more crucial and memorable, I think. So that's what I was setting out to do. It's really not very different from writing the novel. The novel, I had to invent characters, but I wanted them to be based on people that I knew about, or at least the facts should be accurate. And the world in which these characters live, that has to be accurate. You know, when you're writing that, uh, that kind of novel that anticipates, you know, a fictional event, you know, I created a calendar for 2020. I wrote it in 2019. And I wrote, you know, the calendar was for events in 2020. This was just on my, for my purposes. But the 2020 calendar was based on what happened in 1918. So the events that unfold in the novel sort of replicate what happened in 2020. And then the nonfiction book is also about 2020. So it sort of bookends that year forward and backward. You know, it's interesting how much you were able to anticipate the, the virus that you created was a deadlier pandemic, not to diminish in any way the, the death toll of the coronavirus, but it certainly was more destructive. But it's interesting because you addressed this in the plague year. You know, a lot of people said, oh, well, how did you predict that this was going to happen? And you said, and you wrote something to the effect of, you're not the only one. I mean, a lot of people knew that something like this could happen. The Trump administration inherited a playbook from the Obama administration about how to deal with a pandemic of this sort. And then they had their own projections and predictions about uh, crimson contagion, I think that they called it, about knowing what could happen. And yet we still weren't prepared for it as a society. I interviewed a lot of public health people when I was researching both the novel and, and this, the more recent book. And I would ask oftentimes, suppose 1918 came back, would we be any better prepared than our ancestors were? And the answer was, a novel pandemic, you know, it's a, a population has never been exposed to it without any therapeutics, without any vaccine. No, we'd be in exactly the same spot that, that our predecessors were a century before. The only thing you can do in those cases are what are called non-pharmaceutical interventions, such as hand washing, uh, social distancing, masking. That's about it. The repertory was, you know, what we could call upon really hadn't changed. The masks are better. That's about the difference. Well, and that was interesting because that was something that 
the scientific community mostly had wrong at the very beginning, the efficacy of masks, because they were thinking of it spreading the way that a normal flu would spread. And when I say at the beginning, it's been such a long year, but we're talking a matter of weeks, not necessarily, you know, they, they came around in July and realized that people should be wearing masks. But, you know, in, in the first half of 2020, our knowledge of the virus was changing by the day. But you kind of point to a few key moments where we could have made a bigger difference than we were able to. And one of them was masking. Another one was shutting down flights from China and, and elsewhere in the world. What did we do right? And then what were our missteps in those first few months? Well, to start with the missteps, at very beginning on January 3rd, 2020, Robert Redfield, the director of the CDC, had a conversation with his counterpart in China, George Gao. And Gao assured him that this was not a humanly transmissible disease, which wasn't true. Chinese authorities knew that it was, that it, it was supposedly it had come out of a wet market in Wuhan and wild animal infecting workers or shoppers in the market. But there were family clusters, doctors and nurses were getting sick. It was pretty clear that it was a communicable disease. And yet the Chinese were misrepresenting it. At one point, George Gao broke down in tears and said, I think we're too late. And, you know, it became evident to Redfield that something was going on. So he, he said, let me send a team over, a crack team of people, epidemiologists, virologists, to help you out with this. And we'll learn something ourselves. The Chinese refused to let the Americans in. As far as I know, they didn't let anybody in. But the American team was not able to get in. Had they been able to get in, they would have learned something that the Chinese medical authorities at least knew which was that this disease was not only humanly transmissible, it was asymptomatically transmissible. In other words, people could have the virus and not show any symptoms, not even know they were ill, and yet they could communicate it to other people. Well, that would have a profound effect on how it would be treated. Public health people worldwide just thought it was a kind of elaborate flu. And that's one of the reasons that masking wasn't thought of as being that serious, because if you keep your distance and so on, a mask is maybe not going to make that much difference. But if you have an aerosol, as it turns out, this coronavirus was, it spreads, it floats on the air like a cloud of vapor in the cold. In that case, masking was vitally important. And then, you know, I can't overemphasize my dismay at the testing fiasco. It was horrible. Start with the Chinese would not give us a sample of the virus, which is against the international health regulations, but you can't really create a test unless you have a sample of the virus. And so we didn't get a sample of the virus until January 20th, about a month after the, the disease was revealed to be circulating in China. And that we only got it because there was a case in Washington state. So that set things back. But then the CDC, it was such a noble institution when I did stories before, I just was so impressed by it. But they allowed a test to go out of that building that they knew when it left the building would fail 30% of the time. And they sent it off to public health laboratories with no warning about this. The labs were, you know, one of the first things they do when they get a test is they, they test it against something they know is pure such as sterilized water. And the water turned up coronavirus, a false positive. So CDC goes back to work on it. Weeks pass. Dr. Redfield is promising the FDA we'll have it next week. 
Next week comes, uh, it'll be a couple more weeks. Finally, he admits they don't know when they will have a test. And so at the end of February, FDA sent a specialist down to Atlanta. He arrived on Saturday afternoon and they wouldn't let him into CDC. The next day they let him in, but they won't let him into the labs. It's a weekend. And I, I get a little angry when I think about this. Finally, on Monday, uh, he's allowed into the CDC. This is a citadel of medical science, right? So one of the things he discovers is that one of the labs where they're creating the test in the same room, they're processing swabs of virus. This is highly contagious. It, it you know, the viral particles float around the room. A person might walk through the room and DNA particles would get on the hospital gown or the, the, the lab gown and then, you know, go into the next room. It's that transmissible. And it was simply contaminating the test. And it, for some reason that I cannot discern, the CDC hadn't figured it out. Well, it was five precious weeks uh, from the day that they got the sample to the day they finally sent out a test that would work. And actually the test that worked was the test they already had. It had three elements and two of them tested for SARS, for COVID-19 and one for coronavirus in general. And if you just took that one element out, the test worked pretty well. And <laughs> nobody seemed to understand that that was, you know, that there was a test that worked and we could have, but we never, never caught up. We never caught up to those early days when the, you know, the, the gap between when the, we got our first sample and we were allowed to make a test. And then when we finally did have a test that was more or less reliable, more than a month had passed, five weeks. And uh, by that time, the contagion was all over the country and there were not nearly enough testing facilities or swabs and so on. So we were constantly behind. And then, you know, the masking fiasco was, you know, on top of it with the president actually sabotaging the effort at the end. The one last thing that we had to do, they could have saved this. Now, I'm going to say about one thing that the Trump administration did right, because I'm very critical of what they did wrong. Operation Warp Speed was a tremendous success. And essentially what that meant was the federal government guaranteed drug companies that they would be reimbursed for their investment in creating a vaccine, whether it worked or not. And so suddenly you had a lot of different entities pitching in to make a vaccine. As you can see, you know, it's a lucky thing that we had many different entities because a lot of these vaccines turned out not to work or to be moderate in their effect. But one vaccine, which happens to be in both Moderna and Pfizer, is stupendous. And that one, I mean, I think a lot of people don't realize this, but, but that vaccine, at least vaccine candidate, was, was ready to go to trial before we even started having community spread in the United States. This is the advantage of pure science. Barney Graham was the great mind behind this. He is at the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases, which is Dr. Fauci's shop. And I had actually interviewed him for my novel. I had no idea that I was talking to perhaps the greatest immunologist in the world. But he was he's this big six foot five former Kansas farm boy. I'm very fond of him. When I was working on the novel, I, I went to visit him. His name had arisen and I asked him to help me 
invent a fictional virus, an influenza that would pass muster with somebody like him, that would be plausible. And, and so he, he helped me do that. And then I wrote myself into a corner near <laughs> the end of the book because I had to cure it. And I did, I had to turn to Barney once again to cure the virus that he had created that was supposed to be so invulnerable. This was government. There had been a lot of disparaging of, you know, the functions of government since the Reagan administration. If it hadn't been for the pure science that was being done at the NIH and, and NIAID, as it's called, we probably would not have a workable virus. We were, they were predicting that we wouldn't have a workable vaccine. Imagine where we'd be if we didn't have a virus now. Look at India. And they have a virus, they just haven't got it into enough arms yet. But the only thing that's really put the brakes on this is a marvelous and highly effective vaccine, which we owe thanks to the federal government for creating. You know, you were talking about the missteps of the CDC early on. And in some ways, the CDC and the scientific community have never fully regained that public trust because of some of the early communications issues. Um, how much of that do you think was political pressure and how much of it was just misinformation and misunderstanding of, of a novel virus? Well, there are two things. One was poor leadership at the top of the CDC. Dr. Redfield is an accomplished epidemiologist and virologist. Uh, he's, you know, but he's probably not cut out to be the leader of a large organization like that. He didn't defend his organization when it was attacked politically again and again. There's never been as much political pressure on a public health institution in history, as far as I can tell, compared with what was put upon the, the CDC and other institutions in the American public health establishment. Scientists were essentially ordered to come up with findings that agreed with the politics in the White House. There was a guy named Michael Caputo who became, he was the chief spokesperson for um, the National Institutes of Health, FDA, CDC. He was chief spokesperson for Health and Human Services, which covers all of those departments. He began to meddle with, there's a thing called the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, which is the, you know, the, the scripture for the public health world about what's happening, you know, outbreaks and so on. And everything is scrupulously follows the science, but it didn't accord with the White House's preferred messaging. So, you know, that was, that was changed. He actually took $200 million out of the CDC budget to create an ad campaign for celebrities defeating despair or something like that. They were going to get celebrities to support Trump's efforts using money that was built in for public health. That's the cynical use of public monies to promote a political outcome. It's unparalleled, certainly as far as my memory goes. Of the Trump administration's failures, two of the biggest seem to be not having a central leadership effort for how states should combat this and how states should get equipment. And in fact, actively pitting states against each other. And, and you refer to it at one point as distributing needed materials like ventilators based on political patronage. And another being that the president and everyone else by default actively undermining their own guidance on things like masks or hydroxychloroquine being, being the being one of the examples. And do you 
consider there to be blood on the administration's hands for some of those actions? Unquestionably. No, there's no doubt in my mind. Let's just take, you know, in April of 2020, when the masking ordinance was finally proposed and the president was brought out to be the spokesperson for it at, at a coronavirus task force briefing. And what does he say? He says, you know, well, we have evidence, you know, they tell me that, you know, masks are going to work and they probably will. They, they, everybody says it's a good thing and you can wear, I'm not going to wear it, but you can wear it if you'd like to, but I'm not going to wear it. He became a saboteur of this policy. It was our last chance to do anything meaningful, stop the spread of the contagion. And I, it's hard to get past the, the responsibility that he bears for that. I mean, he even went to a mask making factory and didn't wear a mask. <laughs> if there's an example of, you know, impudence uh, greater than that, I don't know. I mean, it, it really undermined the effort of a lot of scientists to do something that would actually help stop the spread of the contagion. Listen, America was going to suffer as all nations have. But it did not have to have this tremendous surge of death, 600,000 people. If we had done as good a job as the state of Vermont, for instance, we would probably have three or 400,000 fewer deaths in, in this country, just to use an American example. But, you know, the counter to that is uh, South Dakota. In both South Dakota and Vermont, very similar in some respects different culturally, but, you know, they're both, you know, small states. They have extremely low un, you know, unemployment. Uh, so they're very successful economies in many respects. But South Dakota had 12 times as many fatalities. And those are two American states. Had there been a federal policy that followed more closely the, the careful guidelines that were administered in Vermont by a Republican governor, I think that, you know, the nation would have salvaged hundreds of thousands of lives. Coming up after the break, Lawrence Wright shares what we know right now about the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic and why it matters that we understand, plus a little bit of Texas politics. Hey, guys, if you've been listening to this interview and you wanted to jump in with ideas of your own, then you may want to sign up for The Conversation, our weekly newsletter that dives into some of the topics that we raise on the show and other issues in the South. You can sign up for it at ReckonSouth.com slash newsletters. There's a very heated debate happening right now about the origins of the virus. And to the extent that I can, I want to separate this conversation. We, we have seen, obviously, a, a large spike in anti-Asian violence in the United States. So when we talk about China here, I want to clarify that we're talking about the Chinese government and and. Chinese bureaucrats and, and the American government and the American bureaucrats and, and not talking about China as a people. But there are some who believe that this virus was was not only created in a lab, but was deliberately released from a lab. And you explore this in, in some depth. I mean, we still don't know the answer. Uh, and we may never know the answer of where the, the virus originally came from. We do know, like you said at the beginning of our conversation, that the Chinese government certainly stymied efforts to learn more about the virus very early on in the process, and that it could have been circulating in form, some form or fashion as early as September of 2019, if, if not earlier. What is your general sense right now of, of where this virus came from? And, and does it 
honestly matter that much in terms of the grand scheme of, of the last plague year. I, I think it will help people understand, you know, the, the quandaries we face with viruses if we understood where this came from more fully. Um, first of all, let's, let's talk about China in SARS 2003. Uh, one of the reasons we're having this conversation is that uh, when SARS broke out, medical world medical authorities went to China to investigate and the Chinese took patients out of the hospitals and hid them in ambulances and taxis until these people left. This is a, you know, this is a society, or at least the ruling communist party was willing to place that gamble. SARS was, had a, COVID is about a 2% fatality rate. SARS was 10%. And had it been as contagious as COVID-19, think of what we'd be facing now. International health rules were changed because of those Chinese actions. And this was really the first big test. Now, the Trump administration was full of China hawks before this happened. And so there was an inclination to dump on China. We remember we were in some very bitter trade negotiations. So that's the atmosphere that surrounded the discovery of this new unknown pneumonia circulating in Wuhan, uh, first discovered in, in December of 2019. SARS came from bats. It may have come directly from bats because they're very similar viruses in bats, or it may have passed through an intermediate animal like a civet cat. So there was a precedent. And originally that was the hypothesis is that both of them coronaviruses this must have been the same kind of thing, just a different virus from bats that came into people and probably through an intermediate animal, probably through a civet cat at a wet market. And that was a hypothesis. But even when that hypothesis was put forward, there were people that were getting sick that had nothing to do with the market. And, you know, there were people getting sick, sick in families and doctors and nurses were getting sick. And so it was pretty clear it was being transmitted person to person, even as Chinese authorities were telling us that it wasn't. So the most damning factor of all this is the suspicious Chinese behavior, which may not be necessary, it may just be habitual with you know, the authorities, but in any case, then there are questions like lab leaks. I think people think, oh, that's rare, it's not. It's shocking how often these things actually do leak out of labs, even CDC. You know, Ebola leaked out of a lab in, in the UK, or smallpox, I'm sorry, several times that's happened, and people died from it. Ebola has leaked, uh, SARS leaked out of labs in China four different occasions. Fort Detrick has had lab leaks. So this is not, it's unusual, but it's not rare. And uh, then, there's the fact that the, the bats are 600 miles from Wuhan and it was December, November, December, a time when the bats would normally be uh, you know, hibernating. Uh, so, and the, the market, if there really was a connection is in Wuhan where the Wuhan Institute is. And so there is, you know, there are a lot of different, and then on top of that, uh, there were experiments done in the Wuhan lab called gain of function. And 
there's a reason for doing them. You have a virus that may one day evolve in nature into a human virus. So why not experiment a little bit, see what it takes to make it a human transmissible virus, and then you'd be prepared to make a vaccine for it when that day arose. They were doing exactly those experiments in the Wuhan lab. Now, they, the Wuhan lab is a biosafety level four lab, BSL-4. It's the highest level around, it's the world standard. And some of the scientists said, you know, they initially thought, well, this wouldn't have happened. We're influenced by the fact that it was done in such a safe environment. But then they learned that actually many of the experiments were done at BSL two or three uh, levels, which BSL two is about the same level of safety as you would find in a dentist office. So experimenting with viruses to see how they can become contagious at a lower level of safety is a hazardous enterprise. And so on balance, I think that either of these things can be true. I don't believe we will ever find out what happened if it was a lab leak, because I don't think the Chinese will ever allow us to, or even, I don't know if the evidence is still there, but we, if it is found in, a, in a, another animal or in bats, then I think we can pretty much say that's how it evolved. Otherwise, I think we'll never know. One of the things that you do a great job of in this book is you know, taking a historical step back and looking at the way that other plagues and viruses have shaped humanity. Th these political divisions and states being pitted against each other. There were moments early on where it seemed like our response to the virus had the potential to pull us together. And certainly on a lot of levels, it did. You know, people found new ways to relate to each other and communicate with each other. People realized how precarious economic safety could really be because of the stock market collapse. A lot of our longstanding economics debates went out the window. You know, we unanimously passed massive stimulus packages to, to try to steer away out of this. But with the summer of George Floyd protests, you know, more and more people seem to awaken to the realities of systemic racism. But then the longer we've gone on, it seems like the more not only that we're trying to go back to the way things were, but that in some states, like your state of Texas or in Florida or in Alabama, where I am, we're trying to make it illegal to move past that status quo. You know, we're saying that like in Alabama, they just recently passed a law that they're not going to be able to enforce that said that, you know, universities cannot require you to take any vaccine that they did not require you to take before January 1st, 2021. And so do you see how has this pandemic changed us permanently and how has it just deepened the divisions that were already there? I don't, I don't like to think that it changes permanently in those ways. It might, you know, there's no telling how we're gonna come out of this exactly. You know, had a foreign enemy attacked America and killed half a million citizens, you know, we would be a united country, but that's not what happened. It was nature and, uh, I think that we tend to discount the, the, the effects of nature. I mean, look at global warming is a good example of how we worry about it, but we don't do very much to stop it. In the pandemics of the past, it's been characteristic that people simply forgot about them. Uh, 1918 was a good example. It was buried in historical consciousness 
And I talked to a, a medical historian in Italy, Gianna Pomata, who I asked her about plagues of the past, you know, and, and what happened after that. And she pointed to the bubonic plague in the 14th century in Italy, which was far more, I mean, the plague killed a third of Europe. So, you know, the scope of it was far greater. But she said in, in terms of the outcomes, what happened with that plague is it was in the Middle Ages. It was a, you know, a, a period of great piety, but suddenly things that people counted on didn't work. And one thing, medicine changed, you know, uh, and once people began to rethink the society they were in, uh, it opened the window to fresh thinking. And that fresh thinking became the Renaissance. Now, I'm not saying we're going to have a Renaissance, but I can say that this pandemic has functioned as a kind of x-ray for us, I mean, to see in our societies, you know, what kind of people are we really? And, you know, where are we broken? I think it's all these things have been revealed. And now we have a task to do, which is to repair our society and our countries. And we may fail in that task, but it won't be because we didn't know. While writing the novel, you were able to kind of think about things like this, like the end of the world and, and annihilation of mankind on a theoretical level. As you were writing this and, and living this like the rest of us, you know, you, you were part of that vulnerable demographic. How did writing about this virus and, and living through it change you and change the way that you think about your work and, and the world? Well, it's been a very solitary experience, right? I yearned to be with my friends and travel. I thought I never wanted to get on another airplane, but it turns out that I really miss my old haunts and the friends I have around the country and other countries. Yet, I was really fortunate to have uh, a mission during this time, you know, to write this book and try to come to grips with what, it, what, what was happening as I was writing it. It wasn't really a history, and it was odd kind of journalism because I, I was all on the phone or Zoom. You know, I, I didn't get to meet any of my sources. There are parts of my life that I don't know how they're going to get back together. I'm One of the things I love, I'm, I'm a playwright, among other things. I had a play in Houston that was we were hoping to take to New York, and it was closed down by the virus. Um, what's going to happen with the theater world, for instance, just to just take a small example, it's an extremely intimate audience environment. Are people going to be ready to go back? and maskless into a 1,300-seat auditorium, swapping their breaths with each other. I, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. And the, you know, the, as soon as something looms on the horizon that's like another pandemic or you know, a, an epidemic of influenza that might be serious, I think that, you know, the lights will go out again. Cities, you know, I live in Austin. People are streaming here you know, from New York and, and New Jersey in particular and, and LA, they're getting out of places that they perceive to be more dangerous and coming to Austin, which has never been, I, I'm a little mystified by the lure that Austin has always had. It's got this absurd PR and people that don't, don't even know anything, never been to Austin, always think it is cool. And I love it. I just am, I'm observing the fact that people 
are, are, are fleeing here as if they're in seeking sanctuary from the danger. And we don't have that. You know, one of the themes that we talk about on the show a lot is as goes the South, so goes the nation. And I think it's probably fair to say as goes Texas, so goes the South very often, or at least more often than not. So let's talk about Texas for a minute. You know, Austin is growing, Houston is growing, Dallas is growing, all of Texas is growing from by the census and, and every other measure. And it seems to be at an inflection point. You know, just a few weeks ago, Republicans in the legislature tried to pass one of the strictest voting laws in the country. And the Democrats staged a dramatic walkout right around the time of midnight that effectively killed the bill. There's a lot of talk about Texas as a purple state. How real is that? And you know, will it matter if the Republican legislature is able to eventually pass things like that and codify it as a, a, a state where it doesn't necessarily matter what the people think? Well, you know, Republicans in Texas are looking over the horizon and they're seeing, you know, a shift that really endangers them. They are a party of aging white men. That doesn't mean there aren't women in the party, but they're fewer of them than there are in the Democratic Party. Doesn't mean there aren't minorities, but there are far fewer than there are in the Republican Party. And that is the fastest growing constituency in the state. So if you look at the demographics, you think, you know, sunset is arriving and there's, you know, uh, something's gonna happen in, in Texas. This last election was sobering in, from that perspective though, because a lot of Hispanics voted for Trump and, um, so it probably is not gonna happen right away. But the growth centers are all urban and all the cities in Texas are blue. Fort Worth was the last holdout, but it's, uh, it, it's, it's gonna be harder and harder for the Republicans to win the popular vote in Texas as is the case nationally. But that doesn't mean they haven't gotten strategies for holding on to power. And suppressing the vote is one of those things. And of course, uh, gerrymandering, uh, it's, which they've done a, an amazing job of. They got far more representatives in Congress than they merit. And they're about to get two more, I think, with uh, the additional population. I guess, you know, people might think this is sort of inside baseball, it's about Texas, you know. But what I think I'd like to convey to people outside of Texas is that Texas is going to double by the year 2050. Uh, at, at maybe sooner than that, given its current rate of growth. And at that time, it'll be larger than California and New York combined. It'll be the largest state in the union and most, most powerful. And what happens in Texas, to paraphrase your thing about the South, is certainly gonna be true about where Texas goes. The nation will follow because it is going to be the anchor of American politics. Well, I don't think even Texans have taken in the level of responsibility that we have for that. We're not educating our children to be the, you know, the leaders of the future or, or the workers of the future. The infrastructure is you know, lame and needs a lot of help. But what is happening right now are these culture wars instead of solving the problems that would make Texas a better state and make America a stronger country because of the importance of Texas, those things aren't happening. We also saw in Texas earlier this year, you know, the, the power grid fail, and we're starting to see a shift away from an oil economy. I mean, not anytime soon, but certainly 
long term. How is that going to affect Texas? I mean, Texas has certainly been able to, to diversify its, its growth, and it's not as re- reliant on oil as it once was, but certainly a big part of the Texas economy. Yeah, oil and gas is still very, very important. You, you take the example of Houston. Outside of New York, it is the city with the most Fortune 500 companies in the country, 21 of them. 18 of them are energy companies. So you can see as that lock of on the energy capital of the world is considerable. These companies are more savvy than people might give them credit for. They know that they have to diversify. They know that the change is coming. A lot of these companies have said that they would welcome a carbon tax if they could just understand what the rules of the game are. But right now, the game is constantly changing and they don't know how to forecast the future. Texas has gets right now 18% of its energy from wind, uh, higher than any other state. That's a blessing. And yet during this storm, after the storm, the governor blamed wind <laughs> for being the problem. Uh, whereas what it was was the gas lines froze up. And... Um, so it's true that it was a storm, the wind stopped blowing, but, um, you know, there's a hostility uh, to alternative energy, which I do- think doesn't serve the state. If Texas wants to be relevant in the energy economy of the future, it has to go with the flow. And wind and solar are going to be a big part of our future. You've written books about you know, potentially catastrophic events like pandemics and terrorism and Texas. Um, you know, what should we be prepared for next? Uh, what, what's your next project? I'm we're working on a musical podcast about uh, Texas politics. And so uh, I'm having the best time. You know, it's a totally, you know, podcasts are something that I came to late. I'm, you know, this, I, I've been on a lot of them, but I, as far as I know, there haven't been very many musicals done on podcasts, and it turns out to be a lot of fun. So I'm working with uh, Marsha Ball, a wonderful, highly revered uh, musician here in Austin, and also with my son, Gordon, who's a musician. But I am looking for a new project, and I, you know, whenever you finish something like a book, it's, you lose your job. You know, people say, oh, you're between projects, which as if the next one is obvious, not and you know so I'm whiny about it because I I've lost my job and I'm looking to be hired to a new project and I haven't found it yet. Well, we look forward to knowing what it is and we look forward to the Texas Musical podcast whenever that's released. Thanks so much, Larry. My pleasure. And that's our show, folks. Thank you to Lawrence Wright for his time and for his commitment to this story. I highly recommend you buy a copy of The Plague Year and his other books wherever fine books are sold. If you want to learn more about this topic or about other issues facing the South, sign up for The Conversation, our weekly newsletter at www.reckonsouth.com newsletters. And if you like our show, please share it with your friends, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, or subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. The Reckon Interview is executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree. It's edited by Kanika Codrington and the great team over at Edit Audio. And our original theme music was written and recorded by Alexander Ritchie. If you've got guest ideas or questions or any feedback, go ahead and tweet me at at John Hammontree. And until next time, thanks for reckoning with us.